Unless otherwise indicated, Ratchet Book Club is intended for a mature audience. Viewer discretion is greatly advised. Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. My wife's here, too. Chapter 81. Emily stormed past the guards to Anne's bedchamber. Please, ma'am. One guard went to restrain her. The lady is resting. Emily's blood was surging. The Duke had returned the night before, yet it was not Stephen who was in her mind, but Anne, her mistress, the person she served, who had lost touch with right. All morning, Emily had prayed about what to do. She knew she had crossed the line with Hugh. My God, she had given aid to someone who had killed a member of the Duke's guard. For that, she could be imprisoned. She had asked herself over and over, if I cross this line... Am I prepared to lose everything? My family's blessing? My position in the court? My name? And each time the answer would come back clear and strong, how could I not? She pushed open a large wooden door to Anne's chamber. William, Anne's nine-year-old son, was about to leave, dressed in his hawking attire. Anne waved him off. Go. Your father awaits you, son. Catch a prize for me. I will, mother, the boy said, running off. Anne was in bed at this late hour, still wrapped in bedclothes. You are ill, madam? Emily asked. You storm into my chambers, Anne said, turning her face away, as if concern were not the issue at all. On the contrary, I have much to take issue with you, Emily said. Take issue, child. No doubt this, as all things, concerns your protege, the fool. You are right, madam. He is a fool, but only to have trusted you, as am I. So this is no longer about him, I see, but you and me. You have wronged him in a great way, my lady, and by doing so, wronged me. <laughs> wronged you? Anne laughed coldly. Your Hugh is a wanted man now, a, a murderer, a deserter as well. He has sought in two duchies and will be caught. And once he is, he'll be hanged in the square. Emily stared, aghast. I'm hearing your voice, lady, she said, but the words do not seem as if they would come from you. What has become of the woman who was like a mother to me? Where's the Anne who stood up against her husband, who ruled in his absence with even tempering grace? Go away, child. Please, go. Do not lecture me on things you do not know. Bars. Ooh, go away, child. Please go. Don't concern yourself with stuff that you do not know, because I'm a... Almost got graphic there. This is a non-explicit language episode. Until they start cussing. Then I'm going to circle back to this. You know I'm going to. I know this. Your men raided his village. They killed his son, stole and imprisoned his wife. She's dead now. In your prison, you knew. How would I know? Anne shot back. How would I know some worthless harlot thrown in our dungeon was in fact this man's wife? I don't govern these taffers. They're my husbands. I don't know whom they rouse and what insane deeds they do. These deeds, lady, Emily met her eyes. They are now imprinted on you. Go, 
and waded away. Do you think that if I knew the person we sought out along was here at Bore in our court, your gesture would still be running around, pained and aggrieved, but alive? He'd be as dead as his wife. You sought Hugh? Emily blinked. For God's sake, why? Because the fool holds the greatest prize in Christendom, and he does not know it. What prize? He has nothing. You've taken everything from him. Just go, Anne sank back in bed, and take with you your mighty sense of what's right and just, all that propelled you to run away from your father and your destiny. Go, Emily. In her anger, Anne turned to face Emily, exposing for the first time what she had concealed. There was a large red welt, and much worse. What is that? Emily moved forward. It's it's a it's a it's a large red well. We just said like what? What is that? It's a black eye. Oh no! Like personally, this is just me, just me talking. One of the things that gets on my nerves is when I tell somebody something and they act like they didn't hear the beginning of the story and repeat exactly what I said. That pisses me off. Hey, man, I'm about to go to the store to get some uh, chips, some pretzels, maybe a black cherry soda because black cherry soda still bangs. Grape is up there, too, and so is orange. Black folks love flavors. Y'all white folks, y'all like Coke and stuff. I, I don't know. But going to the store, get some chips, some soda, some candy. I'm going to go over to the homie's house, pick up a few things. Boom, I'm going to come right back. Oh, you going to the store? <laughs> You know what? Mm, mm, mm. Stay away, Anne snapped, shrinking into her pillows. Please, my lady, don't turn from me. What is the bruise on your face? Anne took a sharp breath. She dropped her head. It is my own prison, child. You want to see it? Well, look. Look at it. Emily let out a gasp. We talked about this already. She rushed over and, against Anne's efforts, gently stroked the wound. Stephen did that to you? You should know it, child, for it's the very truth that you claim to know so well. A woman's truth. Emily recoiled in horror. The side of Anne's face was swollen to twice its normal size. Her son took that rather well. Her son was like, all right, mommy, I'm going to see you later. I'm going to holler at you. He's nine. He took that whole swollen side of the face thing pretty well on his mom. Because I'm going to tell you right now, it don't matter how old I am. If the side of my mom's face was swollen, I'm going to be like, who, what, who, who did, on everything I love, mom, if you don't tell me who did that, we ride tonight. Me and my hawk, Thundar. <laughs> I don't know why a hawk would be named Thundar. I would probably name it Russell Wilson, and then it would be a Seahawk. <laughs> Not anymore. Now yeah, he's a Bronco. Doesn't matter. I don't watch the NFL anyway. Chapter 82. The first thing I did was go up to the hill overlooking where my infant son, Philip, we talked about that too, where my infant son, Philip, lay buried because he has an E on the end of his name, baby, and this is French. So if he's French and it's Philip with an E on the end, what's his name? Felipe. She just said it too. Felipe, you know what? We're going we to dead this writ now. So. <clears throat> Philippe. Philippe is his name. I was calling him Felipe the whole time. Then I was like, wait, that's, that's not right. That's not right at all. I knelt by his grave and crossed myself. Your mother spoke to you in her last breath. There I sat on the hard earth, dear sweet Philippe. See, D you did this. I was good. Dear sweet Philippe. Philippe. I did not know what these sons of bitches wanted with me. What these bitches want from a... What you want. Probably not the same bitches. See, they opened it up. They did that. I didn't have to. What they thought I possessed, which clearly I didn't. Why my wife and son had to die. I dug up the objects I had brought back from the crusade and spilled them onto the grass. I mean, obviously 
everybody else knows he has something. And nobody's telling him about it. Which is really mean. Because if I have something and you know I have something, you don't tell me I have something, then that makes you a horrible doctor. I dug up the objects I had brought back from the crusade and spilled them onto the grass. The gilded perfume box I had bought for Sophie in Constantinople. How sure I had been that I would bring it back to her with pride. Just thinking of all that had happened. Nico. Robert. Sophie. I felt my eyes well up. I looked at the inlaid scabbard with the writing I had found crossing the mountains. Then the gold cross I had taken from the church. Were these the treasures? The things that cursed me? If I gave them back, would they leave me and the town alone? A wave of anger swept over me, mixed with grief and tears. Which are you? I screamed at the pieces. Which is the thing that caused my wife and son to die? I picked up the cross and went to hurl it into the trees. Trinkets, baubles, none of it worth the lives of my son and wife. Then I held back, remembering Sophie's last words. Don't give them what they want. Don't give them what, Sophie? Don't give them what? I sat by my Philip's grave and cried, my fingers digging into my scalp. Don't give them what? I whispered over and over again. Finally, I pulled myself up, spent and exhausting and stinking. I mean, if all you have to clean your teeth is a hazel twig that you use to pick at your teeth. Uh, uh. You wearing the same clothes? Like, we, we're... At some point, we're going to have to talk about the fact that he's been wearing the Jester's outfit every single day throughout this whole thing. I ain't heard nothing of a washed basin or anything like that that he used to scrub his clothes out every day. I just hear about him wearing the clothes. And before that, he had just come back from the Crusades and saw that Sophie was gone and ran off. He didn't shower then either. He, he didn't do none of that. He didn't do none of that. I don't think none of them do that. I don't think they believe in it. That's nasty. And even back then, I bet they didn't wash their legs. Finally, I pulled myself up, spent and exhausted and musty. I gathered the things and then laid them in the hole, replacing the displaced earth. I took a deep breath and said goodbye. Don't give them what they want. All right, Sophie. I won't. Because I don't know what in God's name it could be. Chapter 83. Summer gave way to autumn, and bit by bit, I fell back in the life of the village, rebuilding. I picked up the work Matthew had begun on the inn. All day, I lugged heavy logs, hoisted them into place, and notched them together in joints to form walls. At night, I slept in Odo's hut. His wife and two kids and I curled up by the hearth in a single room, until I rebuilt my quarters behind the inn. Wait, why are you in the room with his wife? I mean, his two kids, too, but why? where he at? Why y'all all huddled up in the room together? Where Where's Odo at? Is this a one-room shack? Like, what are we doing here? I need more words. Like, it should have said, at night, I slept in Odo's hut. He, his wife, two kids, and I curled up by the hearth in a single room. Because that means y'all all just laying right there, like, getting body heat. But Odo's not there. Also, body heat probably stinks. Oh, my God. My wife has left the room, by the way. She has a study. She's a nurse. She's going to school. I'm so proud of her. Like, she won't hear this part. I can say whatever the fuck I want. She's super dope, y'all. Like, so fucking brilliant. And, yes, I'm fucking cussing because I'm so fucking just, like, when I'm talking about my wife, I just get fucking excited. Like, she is really doing the damn thing like i need y'all to know that you can literally pick up your dream at any point in your life and go achieve it like it's not something where you have to wait for the world to change it's not something we have to wait for things to fall into place you can just grasp your dream by the throat and take it and that's what she did she said she wanted to be a nurse she went to school she put in the work I just sat on the sideline and cheered for her. And now she's a nurse. And now she's going back to school to get her bachelor's and her master's and to do all these wonderful things. It's dope. 
but my reading was throwing her the fuck off. So she had to leave out because she's writing a paper. And you can't write a paper when you hear somebody talking about what these bitches want. It doesn't work that way. Sorry. I'm not sorry. Fuck y'all. Y'all know what I'm talking about. If y'all don't feel that way about your significant other, I don't know what's going on with your relationship. Like, you can't treat your relationship like it's a competition. Like, oh, this person's doing this. This person. And, and guys, fucking bring something to the table other than money. Like, if you do something for 20 days, it becomes a habit. Wash the goddamn dishes. Do the laundry. Pick up behind yourself. Clean your room. Like, hang out with your kids. Go to the movies with them. Go to basketball with them. Do something. Stop letting everything sit on your wife's hands or your significant other's hands because you're, you worked hard all day. Because you know what? So does she. This ain't 1929. So does she. Get off your ass. Put in some work. You know, I know that um, a lot of men, me included, are trash when it comes to helping out with shit. Like, I had to work to get better. It was a conscious effort because... Uh, I was not in that mode when I was a teenager and I had to learn it as I got older. But I wonder, and this is literally just me wondering out loud, gay men, if you're listening to the show, when you're in a relationship, do both of y'all think the other one's going to do all the work? I'm really curious. Like, do y'all both just sit back and be like, He's going to do the dishes because I, I worked hard today and y'all just staring at each other like, mm. like, how does that work? Huh. Hit me if you want to. I'm literally curious. I don't know. I know the dirty motherfuckers come from no matter where they live. Like dirty motherfuckers going to be dirty motherfuckers no matter what their background is, no matter what their gender is. But I just know that men historically have been the ones who have always been like, uh, I got to babysit my kids and shit like that. So when two men are together, I just figure it's like an atom bomb of ain't shitness. And I'm not saying that like in a bad way. I'm sure your relationship is sound as fuck. Like I've, I'm certain of it. Like the folks I know, they are probably in some great relationships because they're great people. But when it comes to cleaning, is that just where it's like, Argh! like the man in me won't allow me to help you out. Well, the man in me won't allow me to do shit either. So we ordering out tonight. Yeah, but who's going to clean up? I wonder about these things. Just out loud. <sighs> so anyway, he's sleeping with Odo's wife and his, and, and his kids on the hearth floor. Or in the single room in front of the hearth. Until he had rebuilt his quarters behind the inn. Piece by piece, the town came back to life. Farmers prepared for the harvest. Crumbled homes were patched together with mortar and stone. Harvest time would bring travelers to market. Travelers meant money. Money brought food and clothes. People began to laugh once more and to look forward. And I became a bit of a hero in town. In no time at all, my story to how I had dazzled the court in Triel and fought the night Norcross became part of the local lore. Children clung to my side. Show us a flip, Hugh, and how you got out of the chain. They got chains there? Like, he ain't just gonna be like, I did it like this. <laughs> they actually have to wrap him in chains, right? Like, it only makes sense if you show him the whole way. Which one of them kids carrying around a big old chain? They probably wrapping him up in daisies. That's cute. He's like, I did it like this. And they're like, ah. Probably think he's like Lucia from the Madrigal family. Okay, 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 okay. I amused him with my tricks. Removed beads or stones from their ears. Told stories of the war. See, he's removing beads and stones from their ear because A, this is before quarters, people. And B, these kids ain't got nothing else to do. So they probably really did have beads and stones in their ear. They probably were like, this is the hole. I'm going to put something in it. This pebble fits. This is comforting to me. If I tilt my head to the side and smack the other side, it flies out. It's, it's dope. Oh, no, it won't come out. Can't tell my parents. I'll probably get... This is the 
ten hundreds. I'll probably get uh, tarred and feathered. I don't know what they did to kids back then. I mean, they're they're pimp slapping their wives left and right. So uh, I'll probably get kicked in the ass um, into the river. Let me go get Hugh. He can get this bead or rock out of my ear. That might be. That's like legit. Anyhow, I felt my soul being restored by the sound of their laughter. Yes, laughter truly heals. This was a great lesson I learned as a jester. And I mourned my sweet Sophie. Each day before sunset, I climbed the knoll outside town and sat at my son's grave. I spoke to Sophie as if she rested there too. I told her of the progress on the inn, how the town had banded together around me. You know, I realized, so I know I'm talking a lot this episode. I'm in a talking mood. One thing I realized is that the one place that never is empty, the one place that never has business, except for after closing hours, I'm sure they have those, but the one place that every single day, 24 hours a day, or 365 days a year, I guess I should say, not 24 hours a day, but the one place that always is never empty and always has somebody there is a cemetery. And that bummed me out. Like at any given moment, on any day, somebody is having a funeral. Or somebody is talking to somebody that they lost. And that just racked me for a couple days. And then I got past it. But it racked me. Seriously. And sometimes I spoke to her of Emily. What a gift it had been to have her as a friend. How she saw something special in me as no other noble had from that very first day. I recount the time she had saved me. How it would have been a lifeless mound had she not come upon me after my fight with the boar. I mean, your wife was sick and you were over there dirty, Mac, and that makes you a politician. I don't remember which one it was. It was a Republican. It might have been John McCain. I don't think it was. John McCain was a POW, right? One of them, his wife had cancer, and so he was... Um, yeah, getting it in because his wife, he knew his wife didn't want him to be without, which was really, really shitty. But, you know, politics, men, politics, Molotov. Each time I talked of Emily, I could not fail to notice a flame that stirred in my blood. Now, y'all got to understand what that means if you don't know, if y'all have been whispering around that statement the flame that stirs in his blood means his dick got hard they've already cussed in here that means i can go that's the rule right i mean it's my show i make up the rules as i go along i can cuss fuck you if you don't think i can i'm really fucking good at it gotta temper it sometimes because sometimes i'm talking to kids but this ain't no kids book if y'all ain't figured that shit out yet it ain't as bad as the other books that i've read but i mean it ain't no old thought next door and stuff like that but this 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 ain't no this, this ain't no we all gonna sit down at the radio and listen while we eat dinner and shit this is not and now you know the rest of the story this ain't that shit motherfuckers getting a dick wet and everything getting dick pox so that's the flame that stirred in his blood his dick got hard I found myself thinking of our kiss. I did not know if it was meant to bring back my wits in a frantic moment or just the last goodbye of a true friend. What had she seen in me to risk so much? A specialness. A specialness, Sophie. Sometimes I even felt myself blush. So while you're talking to your dead wife about your side piece, your dick is getting hard. That's the work of a hero, Hugh. One such afternoon, as I was heading back to town from the gravesite, Odo ran up the path towards me. Quick, Hugh. You can't go back down there now. You have to hide. I gazed beyond him. Four riders were approaching over the stone bridge. One an official, colorfully robed and wearing a plumed hat. The other soldiers were in the purple and white of Triel. My heart stood still. It's Baldwin's bailiff, Odo said. If he sees you here... We will all be dead. I ducked behind the copse of trees, my mind flashing through options. Odo was right. I could not go back there. But what if someone gave me up? It would not be enough just to run. The town would be held accountable. Bring me a sword, I said to Odo. A, a sword? 
Do you see those soldiers, Hugh? You must go. Run as if a beggar had your purse. I crouched, hidden from view, and headed toward the eastern woods. A few people saw me scurry away. I crossed the stream at a low point and thrashed my way into the brush. I found a spot near the square and watched the bailiff clip-clop his way forward like Caesar on a stallion. How do you know about Caesar? In, I guess, in France they would have talked about stuff that happened in Rome. I, I guess. Okay. I guess. I mean, because we never talked about how we all knew about stuff that we knew about. Like Boo Boo the Fool. Stuff like that. Black folks have a, a, a line of messaging before the internet because every black mother was not one of your little friends. And uh, I don't know where they got the sayings. They got them, but they all had them. I was in California hearing stuff they heard out in Florida. It was crazy. An anxious crowd formed around them, buzzing. A bailiff never brought good news. Only higher taxes and harsh decrees. He took out two official-looking documents. Good citizens of Vale du Pere, he cleared his throat. <clears throat> Your lord, Baldwin, sends his greetings. In compliance, he said, with the laws of the land, in the reign of Philip Capet, king of France, Baldwin, duke of Triel, decrees all subjects known to give aid or shelter to the fugitive known as Hugh de Luc, a cowardly murderer shall be treated as accomplices to the above-mentioned fugitive and receive the full and swift measures of the law, which, for you sow-addled farmers who may not fully understand, means hanged by the neck until dead. Additionally, he went on, all lands, property, and belongings owned or leased from the duchy by such persons will be immediately forfeited, confiscated, and returned to the domain. And all spouses, siblings, and descendants, free or indentured, shall be sworn in a lifelong service to his liege. Damn. My blood almost burst through my veins. See, he got hard again. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding, I think. I hope. If he got hard on that, that's that's just weird. I'm saying. I'm not going to slut shame anybody, and I'm not talking about fetishes, but that's a weird kink. That's all I'm saying. A heart like that would just be weird. Like he just stands up in the back. Ah, it's me. Um. <laughs> okay, my bad. My blood almost burst through my veins. The town was being punished for my crimes. All personal property handed over. Worked lands returned. Families ripped apart. I waited, holding my breath for a voice to cry out against me. A wife at wit's end, afraid to lose anymore. An unknowing child. The bailiff took a long, measuring look around. He was an obscenity. Thoughts, townspeople? A sudden change of heart? There was a tense, drawn-out silence, but no one spoke up. Not one of them. Then Father Leo stepped forward. Once again, bailiff, our Lord Baldwin shows he is a wise and charitable liege. The bailiff shrugged. Appropriate measures, Father. Word has it that the scum is back in these parts. So what good news have you brought in your other decree? Someone called out. Almost forgot. He smiled and wrapped his head. He unfurled the parchment and, without reading, nailed it to the church wall. General increase in taxes, all raised 10%. What? A gasp raised from the crowd. That's not fair. It cannot be. Sorry. The bailiff shrugged. You, you know the reasons. Dry summer, stocks are low. Then all at once, the bailiff stopped talking. Something had caught his eye. He stood there, motionless. It was the end. My heart clenched in my throat. Is this not the end that only weeks ago was burned to the ground? The one belonging to the person we seek? Like, okay, when I close my eyes, I'm obviously picturing the wrong size end. Like, the only type of ends I know from those days were not those days. They were from literally video games like Final Fantasy, where you you could walk through each door and plunder the treasure chests or whatever was in them. Usually, like, five pieces of gold, but whatever. There was, like, 20 rooms in those places, in those ends, and you had to pay, like, 10 gold to sleep and save the game. I was thinking there was, like, 20 rooms in this inn. 
But if he built this thing back in a couple weeks, it's a one-room shack. He slept on the hearth. They cut it up next to him, body heat. Who's rebuilding it? If my memory serves me, the last of its proprietors were, shall we say, torn apart by grief. A few eyes traveled about uneasily. Who rebuilds it, I say? The bailiff picked up one of the stones. I began to tremble. This was surely it. The end of me. Then a voice rang out of the crowd. The town rebuilds it, bailiff. It was Father Leo. The town needs an inn. The bailiff's eyes lit up. Most charitable, father. And most assuring to hear this from you, a man whose word is above refute. So tell me. Who will run this establishment? Another silence. I will, shouted a voice. Marie, the miller's wife. I will tend to the end while my husband mans the mill. You are most enterprising, madam. A good choice, I think, since you seem to have no heirs to run your mill. Because, you know, they drowned one and the other one died in the crusade. Yeah. Jokes. The bailiff held her gaze. I could see he was unsure whether to believe a word. Then he tossed the stone he still held aside and made his way to his mount. I hope this is all true. He sniffed and pulled the reins. Perhaps on my next visit, I will stay longer, madam. I look forward to the chance to test your hospitality for myself. Chapter 84 As soon as the hated bailiff was out of sight, panic spread through town. I marched back out of the woods, grateful that no one had spoken against me, but I saw the mood had changed. What do we do now? A frightened Martin the tailor shook his head. You heard him. The prick suspects. How long can we keep up this ruse? Jean Du, a farmer, not Jean Claude Van Damme, but Jean Du, a farmer, looked ashen. The land we worked returned to the domain? We'd be ruined. Our entire lives lie in this land. People crowded around me, shouting and afraid. I was a cause of their misery. If you want me to leave, I will. I bowed my head. It's not you, the tailor said, looking around for support. Everyone's afraid. We finally picked ourselves up from the ruins. If Baldwin's men come back. They will come back, Martin. I said to his worried face. They'll come back again and again, whether I stay or go. We took you in, the baker's wife shouted. What is it you expect us to do now? I went over to the inn, and I felt my wife's soul stirring in the rubble. Do you think I dragged these rocks every day and sweat building these walls so that this inn I promised my dead wife I would rebuild could be brought down once again? We all feel that way, Hugh, the tailor said. We've all rebuilt, but what can we do to stop it? We can defend ourselves, I shouted. Defend? The word was whispered through the crowd. Defend, 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 defend. Mommy, I've parted. Defend, defend. Mommy, I threw up. Defend. 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 Yes, defend. Draw the line. Fight them. Show them they can never take away our lives again. Fight? Our leash? People look stunned. But we're all pledged to him, Hugh. I told you before, break the pledge. The gravity of these words silenced the buzzing crowd. Break it, I said again. If we did, that would be treason, the tailor objected. I turned to the miller. So the tailor objects and he turns to the miller. That's like one person wanting to fight me and I turn and punch their little brother. 40-year-old wants to fight me, I turn and punch the 9-year-old. I hope you learned your lesson. And then I go to jail for punching a nine-year-old. I should have just punched a 40-year-old. Next time, I'll learn. I'll, I'll, I'll fight the big one. So then I get out of jail. And I go back. And the 40-year-old is there. And he's like, I still want to beat you up for punching my nine-year-old. son Or brother. Yeah, his brother. It's weird. It's Kentucky. <laughs> so anyway he's like I want to fight you for punching my nine year old brother 
And I'm like, fine. And I push him and he pushes me and I swing and I miss and I punch his dog square in the face. And his dog is like, Arr! and the dog is down. The dog is like this. And he's like, Chuckles. And he runs over to help Chuckles because I punched Chuckles hard. I mean, I literally had to kneel like it was a Superman punch. I jumped and then I came down with all my strength. It ain't my fault that this guy moved. And while he's distracted, I kick him in the balls. And the man is like, why did you kick Chuckles in the balls? And I realize I haven't hit the 40-year-old man at once at all. And I go back to jail to be continued. I turn to the miller. Any more treason, George, than the murder of your son or you, Marte? Your husband lies not far from my son. Was it any less treason when he was struck down defending your home? Or my own boy, who did not even know the word when he was tossed into the flames? Baldwin's a ruddy prick, the miller replied. But these obligations you want to throw down, they are the law. Baldwin would come at us with everything he has. He would crush us like moths. It can be done, Georges. I've seen how a small, able detachment can defend themselves for months against a greater force. I'm not trying to stoke up fire like a little hermit, then have you follow me to ruin. But we can beat him if we stand up. The Duke has trained men, Odo stepped forward. Weapons. We are just farmers and smiths. One town. Fifty men. Yes. And in each town between here and Triel, there was another 50 men who hate Baldwin just as you do. Hundreds who have suffered the same misery and oppression. We beat them back just once. These men will join us. What can Baldwin do? Fight us all? Some were nodding in agreement. For others, the thought of standing up against the liege was almost impossible to conceive. Hugh's right, Marie, the miller's wife said. We have all lost husbands and children. Our homes have been ruined. I'm tired of quaking in my bed every time we hear the sound of riders. You know who haven't lost husbands? The husbands. I mean, some of them might have. They don't talk about that so much in these books. Like, they just... They just have a thought like LGBTQ folks did not exist before, like, 1994. That's wild. Y'all ought to be ashamed of yourselves. I, too, Odo shouted out. We pander to that bastard our whole lives. What comes of it? A load of shit and death. He stepped over to me and shrugged. I'm a smith. I know smelting, not soldiering. But if you need me, I can wield a hell of a fucking hammer. Count me in. One by one, other voices were raised in agreement. Farmers, carters, shoemakers, people who had simply reached the end of their tether. What say you, priest? The tailor begged, hoping for an ally. Even if we beat Baldwin back, will we survive one hell only to be damned to another? I cannot say, Father Leo shrugged. What I can promise, though, is that the next time Baldwin's riders come to town, you can count on me to throw a stone or two. There were shouts of acquiescence all around, but the town was still divided. The tailor, the tanner, and some farmers were petrified to lose their lands. I went up to the tailor. One thing I can promise, Baldwin's men will come. You'll rebuild your homes and pay to the bone every year until your hands blister or your will dies, but they will always come until we tell them they cannot. The tailor shook his head. You wear a patchwork skirt and a bell upon your cap and you're going to show us how to fight? I will. I looked him in the eye. Look, you're not even a jester anymore. Why are you still wearing a hat, dog? Like, if you don't want to be seen as you hid in these bushes and forest and were near death over and over again, that's what he kept saying. You know, it would be easier for you to sneak if you took off the bell, right? If you took off the hat with the bell attached to it and just walked it out. But, you know, I don't know. The tailor seemed to measure me up and down. He fingered the hem of my tunic. Whoever did this, it's a nice job. Then he took my hand and clasped it wearily. God help us, he declared. Chapter 85 Move it here, I called to Jean Dieu, on a perch atop a tree. A little to the right, where the road narrows. High above the road, John hoisted a heavy wheat sack bulging with rocks and gravel. He tied off the sack with a long rope and double-knotted the other end to a sturdy branch. 
I'll send the horse, I said to him. When it reaches my position, let the rocks go. Since the bailiff's visit, we had begun the task of fitting the town for its defenses. Woodmen sheared off wooden barriers to be placed in rows along the town's western edge. Stakes were sharpened and driven into the ground at jutting angles that even the bravest war horse did not advance upon. Large stones were half buried in the road. And we began to make weapons. A few old-timers brought out their swords, rusty things. Odo polished and sharpened them on his lathe. The rest of our arsenal consisted of clubs and mallets, a few spears and bill hooks, iron tools. From these, we made arrows that could pierce armor. We were a town of Davids, preparing for Goliath. I backed off and signaled down the road. Apples, the baker's son, slapped the horse and sent them coming. See? Y'all talk about us because we have wonderful, beautiful names like Nisha and uh, Latrell and all that. Y'all naming y'all kids Apples. Apples. Uh, Space Ranger. Commander. Like, come on now. Nerf. I don't think there's anybody named Nerf, but I'm sure there's somebody named Nerf. Somebody named their kid Espen because they like ESPN. Like, come on now, leave us alone. Y'all are like our names are so hard to say. But y'all can name like all these Tchaikovsky, Tchaikovsky, like Vivaldi and all these. Like, get out of my face. Tchaikovsky, Tchaikovsky, Tchaikovsky. I don't know. I'm just going to call you uh, Bert. Is that okay? Is that okay? I'm going to give you a nickname because I'm too lazy to work. Gene braced himself on the perch, tipping the weighted sack to the edge. When the horse passed my spot, I shouted, Release! John let it go, and a sweeping arc it hurtled out of the sky like a boulder, picking up speed. As the horse passed, it swung across the road with a loud whoosh, at exactly the height of a man atop its mount. Y'all lucky? If it had been just a few inches lower, you would have lost a horse. Like, how many horses y'all lose to get the measurements right? We ain't gonna talk about that, are we? It might as well have been hurled from a catapult. Even the staunchest rider would not withstand its force. John and Apples cheered. Now it's your turn, Alphonse. I turned to the tanner's oldest boy, who had a slight stutter. He was a strapping 15, muscles beginning to bulge. I placed the club in his hands. The fallen knight will be stunned. For a few moments, he will be pinned to the earth by his armor. You cannot hesitate. I looked him in the eye and swung the club hard into an imaginary shape on the ground. You have to be prepared to do the deed. I will. The boy nodded. He was big and strong, but he had never been in as much as a tussle. Yet he had seen his brother slice in half by Baldwin's men. He took the club and sent it crashing down. Don't worry about me, he said. I nodded approvingly. It felt so good to see the town come together. Everyone could do something useful. Woodsmen could shoot. Children could throw stones. The elderly could sew leather armor and sharpen arrows. But when it came down to it, it would take more than high spirits and eagerness to ward off Baldwin's raiders. The townspeople would have to fight. I prayed to God we were up to this, that I was not like Peter the Hermit, leading them into a murderous route. Hugh! I heard an urgent voice call from the direction of the town. Pippo, Odo's little son. Pippo? I'm going to call him Pippo. He's going to be hungry, too. He's going to be a hungry, hungry Pippo. Odo's little son was running towards me. His face was ruddy with importance. I felt a shudder of alarm. Someone's here, he gasped, out of breath. Who? For a moment, my heart clenched. Who knew I was here? A visitor, the boy said, and a pretty one, he nodded. She says she came all the way from Boray. Chapter 86 Emily! I ran the dusty road back to the village, my heart bounding with excitement and surprise. I had thought of her so much, yet I always felt it was just another stupid dream to actually believe that I would ever see Emily again. I took a shortcut through the stables and blacksmith stalls and saw her in the square with her maid. She wore a simple linen dress, her hair pinned up under a cap, and a plain brown riding cloak about her shoulders. And yet she was lovely, 
so beautiful. I had to tell myself this was no dream. She was here. I came out from behind the barn to let her see me. I did not know whether to run and sweep Emily up into the air or just stand there. In all the world, my lady, I finally said, you have no idea what joy this brings me. In all the world is right, Hugh DeLute, she smiled, her eyes twinkling, for it feels as though I have traveled it to find you. How I ached to wrap her in my arms. I did not know what feelings had brought her here or even what feelings were my own, so I held back. She was still a noble, and I was there in torn rags and a patched skirt. This nigga is still wearing the same fucking clothes. Come on, doggy. Like, make... Hey, hey, old lady, while you while you stitching together uh, leather armor and all that, can you make me some pants? Smell this. Not my finger. Just smell me like I smell like outside. Ugh. He doesn't wash his legs at all. I'm sorry for your trouble, I shook my head. But you are a sight for dreaming eyes no matter how far you've come. But how? How did you find me here? You said you were from the south. Emily picked up her satchel and walked up to me. So I merely went to the spot where we have found you on the road and continued south. And south even more. And south even more. Every village we pass, I ask, is there a very strange person here who has come from Bore who wears a jester suit? I had gone so far south I thought I would hear Spanish when this nice boy answered, Yes, ma'am, you must mean you. I thanked God to hear that word, since we cannot drag ourselves one more mile. This is Elena. She wagged her attendant forward. She accompanied me on the trip. Elena, I bowed. I have seen you at Bore. The servant curtsied wearily, clearly delighted their journey had come to an end. I turned back to Emily. So tell me, how have you come here? I shook my head. And why? She just told you how she came here. See, that's what I'm talking about. That's, man. Because I promised I would see you again. Because I told you I would do what I could to find you the answer you sought. I'll explain later. And you came all this way alone? The two of you? Do you not know the risk you took? I told Anne that I had arranged a visit to my Aunt Isabel in Toulon. There was such commotion in Boré with Stephen's return, I'm sure she was happy to be rid of me. We were escorted on our way by a party of priests headed south on a pilgrimage. But your aunt, when you fail to arrive in Toulon, you will be missed. Emily bit her lip guiltily. My Aunt Isabel doesn't know. There was never any visit. I made it up. I broke into a wide grin. You have taken on the world to visit me. But enough questions. You and Alina must be tired and hungry. I'm afraid we have no castles in these parts, I smiled. But there's no shortage of hospitality. Come, I know just the place. I threw her leather satchel over my back and walked with them across the square. Everyone had come out and was staring. It must have seemed an incredible sight. Hugh, who had come back from his trousers without a denier in his pocket, and torn in preposterous clothes with this very special visitor. A woman of high-born stature, a noble, and a most beautiful one. I took Emily and Elena to the inn. This was our inn, I nodded. I have taken up the work to rebuild it. I noticed a glint of approval light up Emily's eyes. It's good work, Hugh. It's no castle, I know, but you'll be warm and comfortable. It's got a good roof and a hearth, which you'll sleep in front of, with me. Body heat. That's how we did it in Odo's house. Me and his wife, his children watched. It was awkward. I am honored. Don't you think, Elena? I have heard the fair in such country places is quite good, and they say the innkeeper's quite cute. I smiled. Then welcome, ladies, to the Chateau de Luc. You'll be my first guests. Chapter 87 There was a big celebration in town that night. We ate at Odo's table, which filled most of his hut. His wife, Lisette, cooked, helped by Marie, the miller's wife. There were Odo and Georges, my closest friends, and Father Leo, and, of course, Emily. A special meal was prepared, a goose roasted in the hearth. With carrots and turnips and peas, a soup of vegetables and a garlicky broth, and fresh bread that we dipped in the soup, there was no wine. But the priest brought along a cask of Belgian ale he had been saving for the bishop's visit. 
By our standards, it was a rare feast. Odo played the flute, and we all pitched in with chansons. The children danced as if it were Midsummer's Eve, and I performed a few tricks, a flip or two. Everyone laughed and danced, Emily too. For a few hours, we forgot the past. All the while, I could not keep my gaze far from the brightness of Emily's eyes. They were as light as the moon, and just as genuine. She clapped and laughed as Odo's kids tried to reproduce my flips, as if this were the most natural role in the world for her. She told them a life in the castle. It was a golden evening, free from all barriers and stations in life. Afterwards, I walked with her back to the inn. There was a chill in the air, and Emily huddled tightly in her cloak. Part of me wanted to put my arm around her, another part quivered with nerves. We walked amidst the noises of the night, owls hooting, other birds fluttering in the trees. A bright round moon peeked through the clouds. I asked her, how was Norbert? His health? He is fine again, Emily said, except he is still unable to do that trick with the chains. But things have changed since Stephen's return. The Taffords are everywhere, and the Duke is behind them. Stephen and Anne, I replied. Anne... Emily stopped, hesitating. I believe with all my heart she did not act of her own accord. You mean the raid she directed in her husband's absence? The slaughter and the mayhem, these were not hers? I only meant that she behaved from fear. I did not justify it. She said something to me, Hugh, that I did not understand. I pressed her on why she allowed these things to occur, and she said, If I knew the person we sought out alone was at Boray... Your jester would be as dead as his wife. I shook my head in confusion. She called you the innkeeper from the crusade. It was why they took your wife. But she claimed she did not know this was you. Why? Why on God's name would they want me? Because you hold the greatest prize in Christendom, Emily tilted her head to me, and do not know. That's what Anne said. The greatest prize in Christendom, I started to laugh. Are they mad? Look around you, I have nothing. All that I have, they've already taken. I told her the same. But you were there, Hugh, in the crusade. Perhaps they confused you with someone else. We had arrived at the end. Emily shivered in the cold night air, and I ached to hold her just for a moment. I would have given anything to have her in my arms, even the greatest prize in Christendom. I brought something for you, Hugh. I have it here. We ducked inside the door. By the fiery hearth, Elena was already asleep on her mat. Emily went over to her satchel. She came back with a calfskin pouch cinched at the top, and from it removed a wooden box the size of my two palms. It was finally engraved, the mark of a craftsman, with an ornate letter C on its lid. She placed the box in my hands and stepped back. This belongs to you, Hugh. It's why I came. I stood there examining the box a moment, then lifted the tiny latch and opened the lid. Burning tears welled in my eyes. Immediately, I knew what the box contained. Ashes. Sophie's ashes. Her body was cremated the following day, Emily said softly. I went and gathered these. The priest says her soul will not reach heaven until she is buried. A knot rose in my chest and throat. I took the deepest breath as if sucking air into every fiber of my body. You cannot know how much I treasure this gift, Emily. As I said, Hugh, it belongs to you. I wrapped my arms around her and drew her close. I felt her heart beating against mine. I whispered beneath my breath so only I could hear. I meant you. Chapter 88 the following morning, I rose before the sun. I took the calfskin pouch that was next to my bed and slipped out of the inn. Next to the woodshed, I found a few scattered tools. I took a shovel. The cocks, I'm not going to say cocks for that because they're talking about roosters, you know. The cocks had not yet crowed. A few other early risers fluttered about their chores. A carter was heading out with his mule. By the baker's hut, the smell of fresh baking bread perfumed the air. I headed for the knoll overlooking our village. I had dreamed of this so many times since Sophia died in my arms, bringing her home. The thought that her soul was incomplete, with no rights or blessings, tormented me. 
Now her life will be complete. She will rest here forever. By the ford in the stream, I began to climb a steep hill. The morning was alive with the birds chirping in the soft light. The sun tried to burn through the mist. I climbed for a few minutes. Soon, I was above the town. I looked back over the waking valley. The little huts had begun to show life. I saw the square in the end. Emily was sleeping there. On top of the hill, I went to a spot near a spreading elm where my son's grave was. I knelt and put the calfskin pouch down. Then I began to dig. I made a space in the ground next to Philip. Tears gathered in my eyes as a heavy drum pounded inside my chest. At last you're home, Sophie, I whispered. You and Philip. I opened the pouch and held the box with the sea. Then I scattered her ashes into the dug up earth and covered them up again. I stood there at her grave and looked back over the awakened town. You're finally home, Sophie. Your soul can rest. I really thought he was just going to bury her with the in the box. Like, you just going to put her in the dirt, huh? You just going to dump it in the dirt. You couldn't put the box into the dirt. You couldn't have given her a true resting place. You just going to have her in there mixed with the mud, the, the, the worms, the ants, the roly-polies, the beetles, the slugs, the snails, the, the, the pincher bugs, the spiders. I, I don't know. I'm running out of things. The caterpillar, no, not the caterpillar, the centipedes, ooh, yeah, um, scarab beetles, roaches, I don't know, I figure roaches were around in 1090, they probably were out in the woods, and then one day they came home on the back of somebody who's been wearing the same clothes for like six months, Hugh. Chapter 89, Stephen Abore sat stolidly on the high back chair in his court. A crowd of toadying favor seekers stood in line as his bailiff brought him up to date on a new tax. Behind him, the seneschal ready to report on the status of his domain. His thoughts were a thousand miles away. An incompleteness jabbed at Stephen. Since he had been back, the business of his estates, his holdings, things that had once meant everything to him, now seemed trivial, worthless. These functionaries droned on and on, but he could not fix. His mind was a brooding pit to focus on a single, far-off point of light. The prize. The treasure. It haunted him, invaded his dreams, this holy relic miraculously preserved for centuries in the tomb of the Holy Land. He longed for it with an avarice he had felt for no woman, something that had touched him. He woke in the night dreaming about it, his body covered in sweat. His lips grew dry just thinking of his touch. With such a prize in hand, Bore would be among the most powerful duchies in Europe. What a cathedral he would build to house its glory. What was the worth of the meager bones of his own patron saint resting in his reliquary? It was nothing compared to this prize. People would come from all over the world to make pilgrimages to Bore. No cleric would be greater than him or closer to God. And he knew who had it. A furor built in Stephen's chest. His underlings were lathering on, blabbering about his holdings, his wealth. It was all rubbish. Insignificant. He felt as if he were about to explode. Get out, he stood and screamed. The bailiff and the seneschal looked at him, surprised. Get out. Leave me be. You go on about this new tax or a new flock of sheep. Your eyes are fixed on the ground. I'm dreaming of everlasting life. He swept his hand across the table in front of him, and a tray of wine goblets clattered to the floor. Everyone scurried, fleeing their places as if the whole structure was about to collapse. Only Norbert, his jester, remained, clinging to the base of his chair and shaking like a man in seizure, trying to make him laugh. It's no use, Norbert. Do not waste your jest. Let it be. It is no jest, Norbert shook, lips trembling. Your chair is on my hand. Finally, Stephen grunted back a smile and the loyal jester rolled away, shaking his swollen hand. A servant nervously approached to clear the mess. Stephen waved him away. His eyes followed the trellis spilled wine until it came to rest upon someone's boot. Who is so presumptuous as to approach, Stephen thought. He looked up at the face of Morgane, the leader of his taffer guard, Black Cross. Have you come to taunt me, Morgane, with news of another village laid waste without my prize? No, I've come to cheer you, my lord, with news that I know where the treasure is. Stephen's eyes widened. 
Where? Your cousin. The lady Emily has led me right to it, Black Cross said with a pinched smile. Emily? Stephen's face twitched. What has Emily to do with this prize? She's in Toulon. She is not in Toulon, Black Cross said. He whispered close, but in a little piss hole in the Duchy of Triel. Vel du Père. Vel du Père? I know that name. I thought you had already sacked. Yes, Morgan nodded, seeing Stephen come to understand. She is with the innkeeper as we speak, and so is the treasure. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Leave a review on Spotify. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts, uh, leave a review on the Good Pods app, and leave a review on Podchaser. You can donate to the show on patreon.com slash single simulcast or at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or on the Good Pods app. You can leave a tip in the tip jar. Thank you so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going you later. Peace. Outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know my name,